Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at the passage of scripture that was read earlier in the service. If you don't have a Bible, the main verses will be projected on the PowerPoint. What is the true meaning of Christmas? Every year, a new batch of articles and hot takes comes out on what Christmas is all about. A quick online search reveals a number of interesting perspectives. One article published in the Indie Star was titled, How Tickle Me Elmo and Nintendo 64 Taught Us the Meaning of Christmas. Now, if you were around about 25 years ago, you will remember what happened the year that Tickle Me Elmo was released. It was the year when a Walmart would come up with a new stock of these toys and they would be sold out within minutes as parents trampled each other and sometimes assaulted one another to get at these hot toys. And according to this article, the lesson is that it was the children's fault. If only children would learn to be less greedy and demanding, then parents could just buy whatever toys they set their eyes upon and they wouldn't have to trample one another. Let's go to another source, a more sophisticated source, Time Magazine. Time Magazine published an article called What Low-Wage Workers Understand About the True Meaning of Christmas. It focused on how the angels announced, as we saw in Luke chapter 2, Jesus' birth to the shepherds, who, according to this author, were the low-wage workers of their day. And the article was about how they walked off the job to announce the good news. And we see the same thing today, as many more low-wage workers walk off the job to announce the good news that there will be peace on earth if only low-wage workers would receive higher wages. I'm not making this up. At times like this, we may be tempted to cry out in frustration like Charlie Brown. Say, isn't there anyone out there who knows the true meaning of Christmas? Well, I asked the Toronto Star... The Toronto Star went on and asked a Muslim. In an article titled, The Meaning of Christmas for a Muslim, the author writes this. The message of Christmas is universal, bringing peace, harmony, and unity among all mankind. Christmas creates an atmosphere of kindness, brotherhood, and benevolence, thus energizing our society. Now, that gets closer to the true meaning of Christmas than any of the other articles did, and that is the typical answer that we hear today, that Christmas is about what would happen if we as humanity, as fellow human beings, just banded together and got along, and the world would be such a better place. We would have joy, and we would have peace. We would have heaven on earth. And they're right in the sense that Christmas is about joy and peace, but they're wrong about where that joy and peace come from. They don't come from unity among all mankind. They don't come from an atmosphere of kindness, 
brotherhood and benevolence. In fact, they don't come from us or from our world at all. Joy and peace come from God as God breaks into our world in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. If you want to know the true meaning of Christmas, you must consider and believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God, the savior of the world. And he alone will bring us joy. And he alone will bring us peace. So today we're going to turn our attention to this well-known account of the angelic announcement to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And we're going to narrow our focus to verses 8 to 14. Our outline will be simple. First, the joy of Christmas. And second, the peace of Christmas. Now this, if you've read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll know that this is the third angelic appearance in Luke's Gospel. But it is the only one where the people receiving the angelic message remain unnamed. You may recall that the first angelic appearance involved a priest named Zechariah. We know that he was a priest who lived in Jerusalem because he served in the temple. He, was a, he has a wife named Elizabeth. And though they have spent a lifetime of devotion to God, the one thing that they have prayed for and asked for remains withheld from them, and that is their own child. In the second angelic appearance, that same angel, the angel Gabriel, appears to a, a young virgin named Mary, a relative of Elizabeth's from the town of Nazareth. And we know about her that she's engaged to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of the household of King David, and that she is favored by God. But in this third angelic appearance, we know nothing about the recipients of the angelic message except what we read in verse 8, that they were shepherds, that they're from the region of Bethlehem, and that they're on a night shift. Now, the, text, the text doesn't tell us why they remain anonymous, but we can try to imagine. God has always had a special place in his heart for shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. So was King David before he became a king. And the prophet Amos, they were all shepherds. God refers to himself as a shepherd of Israel and Israel as his flock. And even pastors today of, of the New Testament people of God, the church pastors, uh, that's just a Latin word for shepherd. And so perhaps God is sending these shepherds an angelic announcement because he really, really likes shepherds and they really, really symbolize what he's all about. That's one possible explanation. But the more likely explanation is that God wants us to get an idea of the kinds of people that he came to save, that he wants to save. I mean, shepherds were not impressive people. They were tough people. They had to fight off lions and wolves, but they weren't respected people. They were largely seen as liars and outcasts, and they lived on the outside of the community, on the fringes of society. But God sends them an angel. Because even if we don't know their names, God knows their names. God sees the outcasts. He sees the forgotten. He sees the lonely, the people who don't belong. And he draws them to himself. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus himself said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The people who don't have it all together, who know that they're failing in honoring the Lord. And the good, the good news of the gospel is that the more sinful we are, the more his compassion abounds. And he shows that by sending an angel to these 
anonymous shepherds. Now, verse 9 says that when the angel of the Lord appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear. These tough men were terrified. They had fought off wolves and lions before, but they had never seen anything like this before, and none of us have. And one of the most intriguing questions that we ask today is, is there life outside of earth? And the Bible's answer is yes. There is life outside of earth, but not in the typical form that we imagine in the image of the green aliens with slanted eyes who live on different planets. This, this life outside of earth exists on a different plane of existence altogether. They are spiritual beings, not physical ones, who can manifest themselves physically as God chooses. Now, I remember many years ago when I was completing my undergraduate degree at McMaster University, I was sitting in a political science course. And one of the assigned materials was St. Augustine's powerful, influential work, The City of God. And even though it's a secular university, it's not a Christian school, we were reading this book together because of its massive imp impact on politics today. And during one of these particular classes, one of my classmates raised his hand and said, excuse me, professor, how can we take this guy seriously? I mean, he believes in angels and demons. I mean, haven't we moved beyond that? Aren't we wasting our time reading this guy's writings? And the professor calmly looked at him and asked, how can you be sure that they do not exist? And the class went completely quiet. And this classmate of mine had no answer. I mean, we live in such a materialistic science-centric culture that many of us can't even consider the possibility that there are, in fact, unseen spiritual beings in the world. Well, some say, well, science has proven their non-existence, or science has never proven their existence, but that is a misapplication of science. By definition, science can only test what is material and what is observable. It is limited to what is testable and what is seen. And as soon as we start talking about what is unseen, what is non-physical, we've moved beyond the proper boundaries of science. Now, the gospel writers obviously believed that angels existed and really did appear, and that's why the Luke, the gospel writer, is writing this not as a fairy tale, not as a parable, but as a book of history. He's writing this as a true account of true events that actually happened in his day and age. And these accounts would have been tested by the original readers. And yet, they have passed down throughout the centuries to us, not as fairy tales, but as history. Therefore, we need to take them seriously, including what they say about angels. So, what does this angel have to say to these trembling shepherds? Verse 10. Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel can assure them and tell them that they don't need to be afraid because this angel is not an angel of death. This angel is a herald. He is a messenger sent by God to deliver the best news that the world has ever heard. I bring you news, he says. Good news of 
great joy that will be for all the people. This is where we get the idea that Christmas is all about joy. It is good news of great joy. Now let me ask you, when's the last time you've heard good news of great joy? Perhaps you heard it once, but the joy has long ago faded away. Perhaps you've never actually heard good news of great joy. Because listen, even the best news that we can receive in this world is mixed with other emotions that quickly deaden the joy and make it quickly pass by. For those Leafs fans out there, you might remember a couple years ago when Sheldon Keefe was first appointed as the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He went from being the coach of the Toronto Marlies to being the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's the dream job. It's what he always wanted. That's what he labored in the minor leagues for all those years. And yet when he received the good news that he was promoted, a journalist asked him, Sheldon, how do you feel right now? I don't remember reading this article. He said something to the effect of, well, I'm just thinking of all the things that I need to do now. Isn't that how we feel about good news that hits us? You, you get a promotion at work. What you feel is not great joy. What you feel is a heavy sense of responsibility that comes with this new role. You find out you're pregnant after trying for a while. And what you feel is not joy, but anxiety and fear about what pregnancy and labor and, and delivery is going to look like and what, it's gonna, what life is going to look like with a new person in your family. I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but if you've won the lottery, I mean, how long does that joy last before it becomes anxiety and fear about how to invest it and how, how to relate to people who are asking you for money? The greatest joys we can experience in this world are tainted. Because often maintaining those joys is up to us. And we're afraid and we're anxious that we're going to mess it up. And we're going to lose the joy that we so desperately want. And in so doing, we, we lose the joy itself. Well, my friends, this, this is a different type of joy. This joy that the angel is announcing to the shepherds and to us, this is a different joy altogether. Because this joy does not depend on us at all. It's a joy that comes to us simply from believing the good news in verse 11. The angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the good news that the angels have come to proclaim. That is the good news that gives the shepherds reason to not be afraid. For unto you Unto you, he says, to the shepherds, to the sinners, to the forgotten, to the lonely, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel calls this gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. This is gospel joy, good news of great joy. Because Christianity, listen, Christianity isn't about good advice. Christianity is about good news. Tim Keller puts it this way, so helpfully. He says, advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. The founders of the great religion say in one way or another, I'm here 
to show you the way to spiritual reality. Do all this. That's advice. Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, comes and says, I am spiritual reality itself. You can never come up to me, and therefore I had to come down to you. That's news. This is why the angel was a herald. He was a herald, a messenger, and not a slave driver. He did not come to whip the shepherds into shape. Because Jesus did not come as a judge or a taskmaster or a tyrant, but as a savior. Even before the shepherds are told to repent of their sins, which they did need to do, to orient their lives according to the good news of Christ, which they were called to do. They're simply told to come, see, and believe. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the joy of Christmas, my friends. It is the joy of knowing that Christ came not as a judge, but as a savior. Christ could have come as a judge. The angel could have told the shepherds, tremble, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a judge, and he is coming for you. I mean, we certainly deserve God's judgment for our sins. We deserve God to come and to announce to the world what we have done in secret and in the darkness And one day Christ will indeed return as a judge. But in this first advent, in this first coming of the Messiah, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through himself. He came not as a conqueror clothed in armor, but as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Christmas is about the joy of believing that a savior has been born. But it is also about the peace that comes from believing as well, which leads to our second point, the peace of Christmas. At this point in the angelic announcement, one solitary angel is not sufficient to announce this good news. Verse 13 says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... Now this is the verse that has inspired countless Christmas carols that mention angels singing. Praising God through song for the Messiah's birth. Angels we have heard on high sweetly singing o'er the plain. Our heart the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. But you notice the verse doesn't actually say that the angels are singing. It says they're praising and they're saying. Praising might involve singing and music, which is probably what inspired the hymn writers. But the point is not the music. They're not trying to top the the billboard charts in first century Palestine. The, the, The point is the message, and the message is what transforms our lives, and it's the message of verse 14. As this multitude of the heavenly host declares, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know what the angels are doing is, what they're doing exactly what they're usually doing in heaven, except now they're doing it on earth. They're gathered in heaven around the throne of God, praising him, declaring his majesty and worth, and glorifying him. 
But here in the announcement of the birth of the Savior, they do not just say glory to God. They sing glory to God in the highest. In the highest. These angelic beings reserve their most exuberant praise, their loudest worship, for this moment in history when God sends his son into the world as a man to save sinners. Now God is, of course, glorified in the judgment of sinners. He puts his perfect justice and his perfect righteousness on display by not just overlooking our sins, but addressing them. His justice is exalted and lead to the glory of God. But God is most glorified, not in the judgment of sinners, but in the salvation of sinners, because not his justice, but his mercy is exalted. And that's what the angels proclaim. And that is what the angels say deserve, that bring God the highest glory. And then they make another announcement. They make an announcement about peace on earth. Peace on earth, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. I mean, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need in our divided, angry, violent world? Don't we want peace? Don't we want peace on earth? This isn't just mental peace that comes from going to the spa. This is shalom. The the Jewish concept of peace, this all-encompassing peace that that wraps around every aspect of your life, internally and externally. Peace in our homes, peace in our relationships, peace in our families, peace in our workplaces, peace with God. It's why the Christian message was summarized in two words in the early church, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, peace is the gift that humanity has always needed and wanted. But this is not a gift that all receive. The angels announce that this peace is among those with whom he is pleased, among those whom God is pleased. Many of us may know the King James Version, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men, but almost every other English translation translates it this way. Peace among those with whom God is pleased. God is offering peace, not to all, but to those with whom he is pleased. But listen, here's here's the problem. Who of us can say that we've lived good enough to earn God's pleasure? Who can say that we deserve God's favor? That God is pleased with us based on how we've lived? The answer is no one. And that makes this verse seem harsh. I mean, who who could deserve God's favor and grace and pleasure? None of us deserve it because none of us have perfectly obeyed God's law. Listen, we, we either do the wrong things or we fail to do the right things. Even when we do the right things, we do them for the wrong reasons. We, we even fail and we sin in our emotions. We feel the wrong things and we fail to feel the right things when they should be felt in that moment. We are sinners through and through in our words, deeds, thoughts, and emotions. And there's nothing that we can do 
to earn God's pleasure. There is only one whom God is pleased with, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus has earned the favor of God because Jesus alone has perfectly obeyed the law of God. He never sinned, not for a moment, not in his words, thoughts, deeds, or emotions. He always did the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. God is pleased with his son. And now here's the good news. Jesus extends this favor, this pleasure that he deserves, that God the Father has given to God the Son, and he extends it to us. He extends it to all who find refuge in him by faith. He folds us into the pleasure that God has for him so that it covers us as well, not because we've earned it, but because of his grace, because of his mercy. It is by grace that we receive God's favor, not by works. God is pleased with all who find refuge in Christ the Lord because he was born as a savior. He was born as a savior who would bring us life in our death and bring light to our darkness and hope to our despair, forgiveness in our sins. He has come as a savior. It was on the cross that Jesus would take away the punishment that we deserve and replace it with his favor and his grace. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this hundreds of years before the Savior's birth. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. My friends, Jesus has given us peace because he went to war. He went to war not against governments or kings or princes, but against our sin. He waged war against our sin and he won. Because even though it was a war that could only be won by the death of God himself, he paid that price. Jesus died so that we could live in peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. My friends, before we see peace on earth, we must experience and taste peace with God. And in order for that to happen, we must hear the good news of great joy and believe. So tonight, let me ask you a question. Do you have joy? And do you have peace? If you don't have joy or you don't have peace, don't listen to the advice of the culture and look within yourself. You won't find it there. Joy and peace don't come from wishing it upon yourself or by having other people wish it on you for you. You're not going to get joy by finally getting what you want, whether it be in your career or in your home or in your bank account. And you're not going to get peace by working harder to make your relationships just work out. Joy and peace are found only in looking to Jesus, who was born as our savior and who died as our substitute. That is where joy and peace are found. And here is the good news. When you find joy and peace in Christ, then you also will know where to point others to find joy and peace in this same savior. And in this way, joy and peace spread. Not in this kind of vague, sentimental notion of Christmas cheer. 
but in the person of Jesus Christ, in the announcement of the good news of great joy. The angel said that he came to bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people, without exception. All the people. This joy is meant for all people. This peace is meant for all people. This savior is meant for all people. And the only question is, how will they respond to this good news? How will you respond to this good news? Will you respond with indifference and skepticism? Kind of like how we read the news every day. We read about those terrible things that are happening across the world or those wonderful things that are happening to these people and we just move on with our lives. Or do we believe it, that it is true for us? Will we let it change how we live? Now tonight, we may not be shepherds out in the field and I may not be an angel shining in the glory of the Lord, but we have something that the shepherds do not have and that is the word of God. We have the Bible. And in these pages, we too can hear the angel voices on this divine night declaring that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. May joy and peace fill your hearts and your homes this Christmas as you hear the good news of the gospel and believe. Let's pray. Father, how we need to hear this good news again in an age of despair and division. We need joy and peace. And human history, if it's taught us anything, is that we cannot accomplish and find and spread joy and peace by our own efforts. We are too lost in darkness. We are too broken by our sin. We need joy and peace outside of this world, beyond our strength and resources, to break into our world and into our lives, and to give us a joy and a peace that will abide forever through every trial and through every affliction. I pray tonight that all who are gathered here, all who are watching on the live stream, would hear the good news of great joy and believe. And come and see this baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and declare that here is the Savior of the, of the world, Christ the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.